Syria is far from the only Middle East challenge facing President Obama in his second term. Iran and its potential to develop a nuclear weapon are also high on the priority list. And Islamist governments in Egypt and elsewhere are certainly making their presence felt. Can the United States work with them if they don't share our goals or interests? Well, joining us now to discuss these challenges is Aaron David Miller. He's a vice president and distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington, D.C. And Robert Satloff. He's the executive director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Welcome, gentlemen. Pleasure to be here. Happy to be with you. Let's start off by talking about Iran. Uh, the country's nuclear program has been scrutinized for years now, and President Obama has said in the past that uh, that his policy of sanctions, uh, while he's working toward a diplomatic solution, uh, is effective. Uh, Aaron David Miller, is he likely to stay the course with this? And uh, how would you anticipate Iran's government would respond? Well, I, I mean, I think that uh, the president will go to extreme lengths to avoid... Uh, either a unilateral American military strike or greenlighting an Israeli one. War with Iran uh, really runs headlong into a domestic agenda and domestic challenges and difficulties, which uh, will only exacerbate those difficulties, from gun control to immigration reform to dependence on hydrocarbons, uncertainty in American economic recovery, all these things will be exacerbated uh, by the uncertainties of a military strike and what, what they may produce. So I think the president will want to go to extreme lengths to avoid a military action. Robert Satloff, would you agree? Well, for sure, the president will want to avoid military action. I think he even more wants to avoid being the president on whose watch Iran gets a bomb. So there is the potential for a deal here. The Iranians have it in their control to determine the pace of their nuclear program. Um, they can slow down their program and thereby relieve the president of having to make a decision. And if the Iranians were as rational as we would like to believe they are, then they won't push the president over some imaginary red line. Well, uh, let's move on. Just about the entire Middle East, I would say, is eager to see this civil war in Syria. And I was just reading that a recent United Nations study showed about 60,000 people have died there now in the last two years. Let's talk about why the U.S. so far isn't playing the same role that it did in, in Libya, helping rebels. And how much of a role it might be willing to play in uh, ensuring stability there uh, if and when this civil war does end. Robert Satloff, what is your assessment? Well, I'm rather uh, caustic about the American position on this. I think the reluctance of the administration to get more deeply engaged is an abdication of responsibility and an abdication of a great opportunity. It's not just responsibility to deal with the deaths. It's also an opportunity to score several strategic gains. Um, why have we avoided it? I think certainly up until no the first week of November, electoral considerations were foremost. I think since the beginning of November, I honestly don't understand. I think that the, the great reluctance that Aaron referred to earlier in terms of military engagement with Iran must also extend to uh, American support for a more active role vis-a-vis -vis Syria. Aaron, I know that you have written extensively uh, on the other side of this that there are real differences uh, between uh, American intervention in Libya and uh, what it could and would do in Syria. Can you expand on those for us? Yeah, I mean, I do take a, a very different point of view, not happily. Look, we're coming off the two longest wars in American history, where the standard for victory, in my judgment, was never could we win, but when could we leave? 
And the reality is no one is talking about the insertion of American boots on the ground. We really do have to do a much better job before we apply military pressure, including arming elements of the opposition, about which we still know very little in in a highly dynamic situation, about what the relationship is between American military action and the end state. And while I think we can do a lot more on the humanitarian side, in my judgment, there is very little that we can do or could have done to alter fundamentally the arc of this crisis. This is not Libya, where you had an international environment much more conducive to multilateral action. You had a regime that was weak. And while I think it is horrific, the tragedy of Syria is that there has been too much blood that has flowed to create a negotiated solution, and horrifically, uh, not enough to create a determined basis for the intervention of a unified international community. And I do not accept the fact that the United States should be blamed in particular. And that's exactly the argument that is made. We are responsible for creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. I, I just don't buy it. It is a willful misunderstanding of the limitations of American power and the nature of a situation that is fundamentally different than any other political turbulence over the last several years. I I think one doesn't have to gild the lily by saying that the United States is responsible for 60,000 deaths in order to legitimately criticize the the administration for its reluctance to act. Um, It's a bit circular, it seems to me, to say that there is no international support for action when the United States hasn't made any effort to create international support for action. Um, We can't wait for Luxembourg to lead this. We can't wait for Fiji to lead this. Um, uh, If there's, uh, it it seems to me dereliction for the United States to say someone else has to lead it. I just don't accept that at all, frankly. Syria is a fundamentally different proposition, and NATO and the international community would have been as reluctant as they are now. The Russians and the Chinese as reluctant to play along, the Iranians as yeah, as, I, as reluctant and as uh, determined, it seems to me, to support an ally. I don't. I, I just I don't, disagree I don't buy because that the, at all. The, the one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why the Russians are so adamant in the in the Syria case is their perception of how we used them in the Libya case. And so the Russians, for this reason as much as any, are adamant to prevent us using the Security Council as the vehicle to act. If the United States is serious about implementing its interests, if we saw a strategic opportunity to, um, to strike a blow against the Iranian-backed coalition, if we saw a strategic opportunity to turn Syria, then we could have acted 18 months ago. I think that's a mistake. I think we, we lost a great opportunity. Of course, we cannot discuss the Middle East uh, without addressing uh, that which has vexed administrations for decades now. Uh, President Obama, during the debates last fall, made it clear that he was supportive of Israel. But uh, is there any hope at all, uh, perhaps with a new secretary of state, of being able to move things along in this Israeli-Palestinian peace process? I'll start with you, Aaron David Miller. You know, I believe that... um if, if you had three basic ingredients, then Israelis and Palestinians could actually envision solving um, their, their problems. Number one, leaders that were masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their constituencies. Second, um, 
a degree of urgency which focused those leaders on the kinds of risks and decisions that have to be made in order to to make decisions on Jerusalem border security and refugees. And finally, if you had those two things, then a third factor, the presence of an administration that actually had a strategy and knew what it was doing. But the reality is you don't have those three things. And we can uh, moan and lament all we want. We're going to be sitting with varying manifestations of the status quo, and it, it ain't going to get any better. So what? So you throw up your hands and say, what "No, are we do? there are there are half a dozen things you can do. You, you can keep the Egyptian-Israeli relationship on the rails, particularly over Sinai. You could try to do everything you can, and I think the Israelis and Hamas indirectly are to keep the situation in Gaza from um, reigniting. You can help to promote Israeli-Palestinian security cooperation on the West Bank. You can talk to the Israelis about any economic restrictions, but." Unless you're prepared to really go at this and have Israelis and Palestinians that are prepared to make decisions, not just on the territorial issues, but on the identity issues, Jerusalem and, uh, and refugees, it's the status quo plus or minus. Robert Satloff, that's a pretty bleak picture. You agree? Well, Aaron, uh, um, I think, quite accurately described the situation, and I think he offered a reasonable litany of things that we could be doing. I think the most important part of this is the fact that you pose this as the um, as the tail end of your agenda in this interview. And mm. I think that uh, that reflects the new strategic reality. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just that. It has become essentially a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians whose reverberations, while real, are not truly substantial throughout the region. Robert Satloff, he's the executive director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And Aaron David Miller, he's a vice president and distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington, D.C. What do you think President Obama's biggest foreign policy challenges will be over the next four years? Let us know your thoughts. Send us a tweet at America underscore abroad.